Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. That's us talking back to God, but it, it, worship is kind of unique in a in a corporate setting because it's us coming together and corporately confessing the the truths that we believe, and, uh, confessing our faith in Jesus, and, and 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 able to express that and, and let that out in, in a unique way. And I'm convinced that we experience Jesus in a unique way when we do that. So thank you, Kaylee. Uh, that was awesome, and uh, it's always a blessing to have you. It makes a uh, Tuesday nights better. Uh, a couple of things before uh, we get into the Word. A couple of announcements I have. One, um, I'm going to say this every week till it comes, because it's, it's important. It's a big deal, I think, for us. We have a, a Friendsgiving that we're putting on to the whole church on November 19th, uh, the Saturday morning. The idea behind this was we were looking for some way for us to be able to serve together, uh, an event that we could put on. And we realized that the last couple of years, since we've had Bless Fest, we weren't able to have the Wednesday night service before Thanksgiving. And typically, after the Wednesday or before the Wednesday night service, there would be a, a Thanksgiving dinner for everybody just to kind of hang out and fellowship and just kind of celebrate Thanksgiving with your family. Or with, with your spiritual family, with the church. Uh, but since we do Bless Fest on Thanksgiving, we don't really have that. And so we thought it would be a good idea to have a time and place to be able to create an atmosphere for people to have that kind of fellowship together and, um, and just enjoy each other around Thanksgiving. So we're going to put this event out in the church, or in the, the gym, we're inviting the whole church. So it, it should be a, uh, a lot of fun some work and so we need help next week uh, starting next week i'll have a, a sign-up sheet where you guys can sign up to volunteer and uh and i would really appreciate it if we could do that it really means a, a lot to me i think it's a, a great opportunity for us to show the church who we are and uh and and i'm excited for it and i know you guys will do a great job you guys always do so that's october or, i'm sorry november 19th mark that day in your calendar um it's going to be great uh I'm going to share a little bit, and then we're going to share a, a testimony. Uh, we're going to have some worship. We're going to serve some great food. It's just going to be a fun time. Another announcement I want to make you guys aware of is there's an opportunity uh, to go to Israel. I know we had planned a couple of mission trips, and COVID kept happening and, and whatnot. Um, I got the okay from Pastor Bob and was able to work some stuff out. To be able to provide a tour at a much more affordable rate than the normal tour that the church does, uh, January 21st through January 31st. So if you're interested in that, I've got some flyers up here. Uh, feel free to take one or ask me any more questions. Um, it sounds like we're still going to be able to do the, um, the mission trip in the summer as well in June. So I'm excited about that. But if you want more of a, a tour, uh, this might be a good uh, option for you. Uh, now, if you have your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8. Uh, today we're talking about the assurance of grace and salvation. That's the topic we're on as far as the truths we confess. Now this passage isn't necessarily uh, something we're going to exegete verse by verse or that, but I, I wanted to start us off in the Bible, and it has to do with what we're talking about. And it's just a great passage. So we'll read that. I'll pray for us. And then we could uh, start getting into our study. If you don't have an outline, there's some outlines up front. Uh, you can fill in with me. You can know when I'm almost done. Um, but starting in verse 31, Paul writes this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. God, I thank you that you are for us and you are not against us. I thank you that we have these wonderful truths here that uh, confirm your love for us and your care for us and that uh, that, that we're secure in you, Lord. And I pray that you would speak that to us tonight, that you would give us that assurance that we truly are saved and that we are secure and that we're going to be with you forever, Lord. Uh, we need that confidence to be as bold as, as you want us to be here on earth, Lord. And so I pray that you would minister that to us. I thank you for these that are here, Lord. I pray for those that aren't. I pray that you keep them safe. I pray that you speak to them, that you be with them, Lord. And I pray you bring them back to us, Lord. I, I long for the day where we could all be together. Uh, but we ask right now that you would be our teacher, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have a question for you guys. I want to start out asking you guys kind of a question. Uh, how do you know that you're saved? If someone asks you, hey, how, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that you're uh, a genuine believer. What evidence do you have? What would you What would you say? What would your answer be? Yeah, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul says in Romans eight. Anna. Yeah, you have you have new affections. You're you're a new creation. Paul says, "That's that's exactly right." Anybody else? 
Yeah, you have a. Uh, yeah, you see that the, the Bible is a, a revelation of God. It's not just some book. Anybody else have an answer? How, how, how do you know that Jesus is God, that Jesus is true? He resurrected from the dead. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So all these things are true. But this is the question that we want to answer tonight. Last week we talked about the security that a believer has, right? We, we talked about uh, kind of the once saved, always saved, that if you're truly saved, you're going to make it to heaven. This is called the perseverance of the saints. It's called the perseverance of the saints because God is going to cause those that are truly his to persevere through this life into heaven, right? Uh, the, the, it's also called eternal security. We're, we're secure in Christ. Nothing is going to be able to pluck us out of his hand, the Lord says. As we read in Romans 8, that nothing could separate us from his love. But the Bible is overwhelmingly uh, clear that we have security in our salvation. I think one of the greatest verses, this is a great verse to memorize, to tell people how to express to people that we have eternal life is John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says this, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. So first we have the positive. If you hear his word and you believe him who sent him, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it says that you have eternal life. Jesus present tense. You, you, you already have it. It belongs to you. And the very nature of eternal life is that it, well, it's eternal. It, it lasts forever. Jesus doesn't say that you have a five-year life or a 10-year life or a 20-year life or a 2,000-year life. No, you have an eternal life, a life that is going to last forever. And, and so we have kind of the, uh, the positive there. We, we have that. But then also he adds the negative. He says, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. So, so we have Jesus giving us both a promise that we have eternal life and a promise that, that we won't face a judgment. Right? Two times in this verse, he is expressing the security that the believer has. How about this? In John six thirty-seven through 40, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. This is speaking of election. Before the foundation of the world, God elected the people that were going to be saved. And Jesus is saying all that was elected and given to him by the Father, they, they will come to him. And the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise it up, raise him up on the last day. This is a, a, an amazing portion of scripture. It really is. What we learn here is that it's the Father's will and the Son's mission to get us into heaven. You see, us getting to heaven isn't up to us. I'm not going to get to heaven 
by my own effort. It, it, it's not going to be me, you know, working extra hard or being extra holy or, or, or really doing anything. You see, I'm going to get to heaven because Jesus is going to get me there. It's Jesus's job to get me to heaven, not my own. about Jude 24 and 25? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. God's able to keep us from stumbling. He's able to keep us in Christ through his Holy Spirit and through his word and through his providence so that we make it to heaven. And not only that, we could also be sure that we're going to make it to heaven because of Jesus' intercession for us, because of Jesus' prayer for us. On the night that he was going to be betrayed, right before he was going to be arrested, he, he prays to the Father for the believers. He prays for his disciples, minus Judas, who had went off to betray him. And not just those disciples who are with him, but he prayed for everyone who would come to believe through their testimony, which is everybody. Because everybody comes to believe through the Apostles' testimony, through the New Testament. And so that includes us. And he prays this. He prays that, that we would be with him where he was. That we would see him in the glory that he had before the incarnation, before he came to the earth. So Jesus is literally asking the Father that all the believers through the church age would be with him in heaven. And not only that, he continues to pray that day after day after day. Hebrews 7.25 says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's praying that same prayer over and over and over every day. God, I, I want them here. God, bring them here. Make sure they get here. And we know that Jesus, what he says is always the Father's will. He says everything I, I say, everything I do is the Father's will. And we know that God hears his prayers. Jesus, before he raised Lazarus, he's standing at the, the tomb. It's all sealed up. And, and, and he prays. He prays out loud. And he says this. He says, Father, I thank you that you hear my prayers. You always hear me. There isn't a single prayer that Jesus prayed that isn't heard. And Jesus is always praying the Father's will. And the, the Father delights to give the Son good things. So how could we doubt that, G that God isn't going to answer Jesus' prayer that we'll make it to heaven with him? Right? All of this speaks of overwhelming evidence that we have security in our faith, that we have security in Christ. In chapter 10, he's going to say, hey, you, you know, nothing could snatch you out of my Father's hand. Nothing could snatch you out of my hand. Right? We're secure in his hand. You see, we think we're getting to heaven because we're holding on to Jesus. That's not the case. We're going to get to heaven because Jesus is holding on to us. But a couple of thoughts. There is that security if you're in Christ. But how do we know that we're in Christ? How do we know that we're truly saved? Well, we all know those that have confessed Christ and maybe walked with Christ for a little while and have come to church for a while. And then stop. Coming, they commit apostasy. I mean, Jesus even gave a parable, parable about this, right? The parable of the soils. And out of the four places where the seed, the seed scattered, three of them sprung up and had life right away. 
But only one of those that made a profession of faith was genuinely saved. Only one of them endured to the end. There was this guy, Charles Templeton. He was an evangelist. Have any of you guys heard of him before? He worked with Billy Graham. And, and when Billy Graham was getting started, it was Charles Templeton and Billy Graham. It was literally in that order. Charles Templeton was the more gifted preacher. He was a better orator. He would preach with such power and conviction and passion. And, and people would get responses. He would, uh, you know, Billy Graham would kind of open up for him. He was the main act. Everybody thought that, man, this is, Charles Templeton is really the guy. He, he's the, the evangelist of the 20th century. Well, after years and years of going around America and preaching the gospel and seeing people, droves and droves and droves of people come to faith, he decided he didn't believe in the Lord anymore. He decided that, that God isn't real. He, and he died an atheist. What about people like him? What about people that start out so on fire for the Lord and then just abandon it and leave it and walk away and die in unbelief? Well, John answers that. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they're not all of us. And so now there's a question. This guy, Charles Templeton, was he really saved and secure in his belief? And even though he stopped confessing Christ, he was saved because the Lord was going to keep him? Or was he someone that John is talking about in 1 John 2.19? I don't know. I'm thankful that I'm not the one that makes that decision. But I can tell you this. His family has no real confidence that, that he's in heaven. He, he has no... He had no assurance of his salvation in years of his life. His family has no assurance that he's with the Lord like Billy Graham's family does because of the way he finished. So it's very possible that you could fall away and it exhibits that you aren't a true believer, but you were a make-believer the whole time. But there's also the, the, the risk that you're confessing Christ and you're not truly saved. You're what I call a make-believer. You're, you're, you're somebody who has a, a counterfeit faith. Remember in John chapter 2, Jesus, he shows up at Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and, and, and he cleanses it. He flips over the money table, changes tables, he drives out all the animals, drives all the people out. He, he just utterly cleanses the temple, drives... Tens of thousands of people off the temple mount, off the temple grounds. And then he restores the temple to what its original purpose was supposed to be. He starts healing people. He starts preaching. He starts performing miracles. He's casting out demons. He, he turns it back into a place where sinful men uh, and, and hurting men could come and, and meet with God and be healed and, and, and hear the word of God and, and come into fellowship with God, what the temple is always supposed to be. But then it says this in John 2, 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
they're believing in Jesus, and Jesus isn't believing in them. It's the same word, pastuo, in both places. They're saying, hey, Jesus, I believe in you. They're confessing Jesus' name. But Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not going to entrust myself to you because I know what kind of faith you have. You have a shallow faith. You have a faith that just really just wants to be entertained. You want to see me do magic tricks. You want to... Uh, you want what I could provide for you. You want the, the healings. You want the blessings. But you don't really want me. You see, security is the fact that we are secure. Assurance is the feeling that we know that we're secure. Again, assure, security is the fact that we're secure. Assurance is the feeling that we know that we're secure. And assurance is a blessing. But it's a blessing that could be forfeited by disobedience. You see, the Christian or the confessing Christian who says they believe in Jesus yet doesn't live that out, they have no room for assurance. Jesus doesn't want them to have assurance. The person who has assurance is confessing Christ and they're in Christ and they're living Christ out. There's evidences of it in their life. And Jesus wants those people to know you're saved. You're going to heaven. Nothing's going to change that. But to the people who aren't living right, the people who call themselves Christians but are living like the world, or the people in the world, God doesn't want them to have assurance that they're going into heaven. He's calling them, hey, turn back to me. Get right with me. You need the gospel so that you can go to heaven. This was the ministry of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. They're coming to Israel and they're saying, hey, return of the Lord before the, the great and, and, and troublesome day of the Lord, before the judgment falls, return. It's calling them to repentance. But how do we know that we have the real deal salvation? How can we live with the confidence God wants us to have, knowing there's people with a counterfeit faith and that there's people who are going to fall away? How do we know we're not one of those people? In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul's already written to the Corinthians at least, this is at least his third letter to Corinth. He's given them all kinds of doctrine, all kinds of exhortation, all kinds of correction, you know, all, all, all kinds of stuff. They've been in contact with Paul. And at the end of this letter, of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Well, do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? They said, hey, hey don't, don't count on some past experience. Test yourself and continually test yourself. Every day, test yourself. Am I in the faith? Am I walking with Christ? Is Christ in me? Is Christ's word abiding in me? Second Peter 1, 10 and 11, Peter writes, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Make sure you're saved. Make your calling. Make your election sure. You make, Peter wants us to have this confidence that our entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is open to us. 
that we've already had that supplied to us. And so tonight we're going to do just this. We're going to examine ourselves. We're going to test ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. I've identified 11 ways that the Bible gives us assurance of our faith. 11 tests that we could take to see if we are genuine believers. And if we have these 11 uh, attributes, we can be assured our salvation is real and that we're going to persevere to heaven. Now, it's important, I want to make this distinction here before we get into these. It's not about perfection. It's not that we have to be perfect in these 11 things to know that we're saved. Genuine faith isn't about perfection. Genuine faith is about progress. So when we're examining ourselves, if we're looking at these things, we've got to see if, if we're making progress in this area. Are we seeing these attributes growing in our life? And if they're growing, we can be assured that God is working and, and that we're truly saved. If it's not growing, we, we don't have that confidence. It's interesting, these 11 attributes uh, that identify this, there's just a lot of natural qualities about humans. Just natural things that humans have that kind of mirror these attributes. Right? And, and so it's, it's even impossible to be deceived in these. We need to make sure that they're in us and that we're growing in them. And, and, and might I say this also, that this growth in these attributes, it really starts with our passions, with our desires, like Diana was saying. You know, imagine that I was married. Right, and I uh, and I've got just a horrible anger problem. I'm lashing out on my wife and my kids all the time, just completely losing my cool. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen people like this, right? That are just at the drop of the hat could just, you know, their their lid comes off of them, and they, you know, all their veins are popping out, and they're bright red and spitting on everybody as they're yelling. Right, but then I get saved, and I say, "Hey, I met the Lord. I'm a new person. Hallelujah." And then I go to bed one night, and my wife comes, and she's like, hey, I need to charge my iPhone. And she's looking around for her charger, and she can't find hers, and so she unplugs mine and plugs hers into the charger. Then the next morning, I get up, and I, I go to work, and I realize that my phone hasn't been charged, and it's dead. And I just flip it. I, I lose it. I call her every name under the sky. And I'm on my way to work about 20 minutes later, driving down the freeway, and I'm like, man, what am I doing? I can't talk like that. I can't treat my wife like that. I'm a Christian. You Christians don't act like that. I need to get changed. Well, that's evidence that this, there is a change. That, that's evidence of these things in my life because they start in our heart. Remember Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, God's going to work in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It starts with him changing our heart, giving us new desires, giving us new passions. And that works out into our actions. So it may not be visible to others, but we could look and say, hey, is my heart starting to change? I'm starting to have desires for these things. And that's progress. Because the unbeliever doesn't have that. This hypothetical guy, he didn't have those thoughts after he blew up on his wife. Before he got saved, right? So it's important when we go through these that that it's not necessarily saying we have to be perfect at these things, but we 
have them in our life, and we're growing in it. So let's take this test. For letter A, fill in the word God. First, we're going to look at evidences from a Christian's relationship with God. We're going to look at, you know, what our relationship with God uh, should tell us, what, what we should have in our relationship with God, if we truly have a real relationship with God. So for number one, then, fill in our two Christian, Christian experiences fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. So fill in the word fellowship. Fellowship really is, is the end goal. That's what, that's what God is, is working. That's what this word is for, the Bible, is to bring us into fellowship with God. It's not enough that we hear it, we believe it, we confess it, we share it. Right? God's goal is to bring us into fellowship with him. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3 says this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was made manifest, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested in us, or to us. Verse 3, here it is. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. First John really is all about uh, do you have real faith? You know, First John really is a test written to Christians to say, hey, are you, are you really a believer? The Gospel of John is, is how to get to know God. The First John is, is a test, do you really know God? And this first test is, is, do we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son? John's expressing his heart's desire to see other people, or, or better yet, all people come into fellowship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So our fellowship was with the Father, our fellowship is with the Son, and our fellowship is with the Holy Spirit. We have fellowship with the entire Godhead. In other words, we get all of God. There's no part of God that he's holding back from us. He wants to give all of himself to us. Now this begs the question, do we want to give all of ourselves to God? Is there some aspect of ourself that we're holding back from our relationship with God? Are there parts of our lives that we don't want to give them? Hey, God, you could have you know, this part of me, but you can't have this part. You could have my Sundays, but you can't have my Mondays. You could have everything but my time you know, with the boys, playing Xbox or at the bar. Or whatever. What part of our life, what part of our walk are, are we holding back is the question. You know, in John uh, 14 through 16, Jesus gives what's known as the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. It's called different things. But in reality, this, this talk, we studied this when we studied the Gospel of John, that Jesus gives 
It could really be seen as his last will and testament. It has a lot of characteristics that a, a last will and testament would have. He's uh, he gives last words of encouragement to his disciples. He gives words of instruction to them. Uh, but he also bequeaths uh, promises and, and an inheritance upon them. He tells them, hey, it's, it's to your advantage that I go away. Uh, because it, he would send the, the Holy Spirit, the helper, uh, to come and, and do special things for them. And this Holy Spirit's going to do things like lead them into all truth. Like bring the, 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 the words that Jesus spoke to him to remembrance. But that's why it's so important that we read our Bible. Because right? if we're not, if we're not reading the word, how is the Holy Spirit going to bring those things to our remembrance? Right? We can't remember things that we've never heard. But that's, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is promising that to believers. But he says this. He says, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not know him, or does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Right? This is a totally new thing. Now, it, they don't just have Jesus sometimes, right? He's going to literally be with you and in you. He's with you 24-7. He's constantly with us. There's no escaping his presence. You know, he'll, he'll let you ignore him, and, and, and he'll live in your presence, and he'll uh, always be there for the believers. Right? But I have to ask, is this a comfort to you? Is this a pleasant thought? That God's always there? That God sees everything? That God is a part of your day 24-7 every day? Whether you like it or not? Or is it not? Is it discouraging? Is it a bummer? Are there some parts of our day that we wish Jesus wasn't with us? Right? Is it good news that he's constantly with us, 24-7 with us? Or do we want autonomy? We want some amount of freedom. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's times in our day and places that we go that we wish we could just leave Jesus at the door. That we could say, hey, Jesus, just wait in the car. I'll be right back. If this is you, and like I said, I'm, I'm confident for most of us, I know that I fall into this group at times. It says that we, we have work to do in our relationship with Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus isn't perfect yet. But that's okay, because remember, it's not about perfection, it's about progress. The question isn't, are we perfect, but are we growing? Are we experiencing more and more of the fellowship with God as we live out this Christian pilgrimage called life? In Romans eight fifteen, Paul writes, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption that by they're as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Right? Are, are, are we crying out constantly, Abba, Father? Are we in, are we in a fellowship with God where we, we have that intimacy, Abba, Daddy? We're referring to God like a little child refers to his dad. 
you know, I, I love the Bible. I, I really do. I, I absolutely love the Bible. Come to my house. I, I collect these super fancy Bibles. I got way too many of them. Uh, I've got. <laughs> I collect books written about the Bible. You know, it, it's embarrassing how much money I've spent on the Bible, books about the Bible, study tools for the Bible, all of this stuff. Uh, I, I was so geeked yesterday because Logos came out with Logos Ten, and I spent hundreds of dollars upgrading my Logos and adding to my library so I could spend more time and better study the Bible. It's just something I love. And I'm not saying this to brag or to boast at all. You see, my point for saying this is I often have to ask myself, uh, I have to examine myself, am I really coming into deeper fellowship with the God or with God, or am I seeking a, a deeper relationship with the Lord through his word, or am I using his word for some other means? And the reason I ask that is because I'm in other groups with people who say their Bible needs to met, and I, and I see people falling into this trap all the time. They, they, they want these fancy Bibles because uh, they, they may see, need to look to other people like they like the Bible more, or they buy all these books about the Bible and, and things like that. But they aren't actually coming in to fellowship with God through the Bible. Jesus says this, sorry, you know, you, you look at the Pharisees, and they're a perfect example of this, right? They were all Bible, they memorized the Bible, they had the Old, they had the old Testament memorized, but they had no relationship with God through the Bible. They didn't know the God who wrote that Bible. In fact, Jesus says this of those Pharisees, he says, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. In it is these that testify about me, and you're unwilling to come to me so that you can have life. It's possible to get up and read this book every day, to read it religiously over and over and over and over again, and to never actually come into fellowship with the God who wrote it, the God that it's about. We don't read this just to memorize verses, to sound smart or to know doctrine. The whole point of this is to come into contact, to come into fellowship with the living God. So I have to ask, is your Bible study bringing into you, you into fellowship with God? Are you experiencing God in his presence, or are you just reading a book about God? And it's not just the Bible. There's many things that Satan can and does use as a substitute or a counterfeit for real fellowship with God. Maybe it's coming to church. Maybe it's a baptism or, or some other religious experience. Remember in, in Acts chapter 8, this guy Simon Magus, magician, he, he gets he is full of preaching, he confesses Christ, he even gets baptized. But we find out that, that he wasn't truly saved. We, we can't be counting on some past religious experiment to, or experience to know that we're saved. We have to be counting on the fact that we're in continual fellowship with the living God. Or maybe it's ritualistic prayer. Maybe you're praying every day. You're counting your rosary beads and saying our fathers and Hail Marys and things like that. But are you actually coming into communion with God? So what's genuine fellowship look like? How do we know that we have this genuine fellowship that I'm talking about? Well, 
most of these points we're going to look at or, or evidences will, will hopefully draw out what this changing fellowship looks like. So for point number two, fill in the word ministry. A true Christian experiences the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the heart. In Romans 8, 9, Paul says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if it, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Paul says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not a Christian. You do not belong to him. That's the evidence, is that you have the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ lives in you. And he doesn't just live in you. He works in you. He, he, he ministers in your life and, and in your heart and in your soul. And, and these, this ministry of his uh, works its way out and becomes evident in the way that we live, the way that we act. The first way we see the Spirit's ministry is fighting and gaining victory over the flesh in our life. In Romans 8, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So the Spirit evidences that we're sons of God because it is leading us to make war with, to mutilate the deeds of our flesh. It's, it's helping us to put to death the deeds of our body. You see, the Spirit leads us in a holy war against our sinful nature. You know, there's two places in the New Testament where it talks about believers explicitly being led by the Spirit of God. And one of them is right here in Romans 8.15, and the other is in Galatians 5. And both of them are the Spirit leading the believer to fight and overcome their sin nature. In other words, the Spirit is leading us into sanctification, this progressive sanctification, where we're overcoming more and more of our sin and becoming more and more like Jesus. So that's the first ministry of the Holy Spirit in our heart. It leads us to make war with our flesh. The second ministry of the Spirit is in illuminating, illuminating the Word of God in the believer's life. Right? All of a sudden, we start to, to get the point of the Word, right? We start to, to see and come into contact with Jesus through the Word. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, But a natural man, an unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually the fact that you understand the spirit, the things of God, through the Word of God, the way that God wants you to, is evidence that the Spirit is ministering the Word of God to your heart and mind. Because you see, in Second Corinthians four four, Paul says this. He's talking about unbelievers, and he says that uh, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when an unbeliever reads the Bible, Satan's blinding their minds so that they're reading it, but they're not getting what God wants them to get out of it. They're not getting the idea that they need to come into fellowship with the living God. 
that they need to surrender to Christ. They're, they're, they're not coming into relationship with Christ through it. And so the first ministry of the Spirit is to war with our flesh. The second is to illumine the Word of God to our our mind. And thirdly, the Spirit's ministry is to produce the fruit of the Spirit in the believer's life. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against, against such thing there is no law. Verse 24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You see, in other words, if we're truly Christians, if we have truly crucified ourselves, these characteristics will be on display in growing in our lives. You see, the people around us are going to see that we're growing in love. They're going to see that we're growing in joy, growing in peace, growing in patience, and so forth. And these attributes grow in both quantity and quality. They grow in quality and frequency. You see, we have greater patience in a, a growing amount of time. We have a growing quality of patience. We have a greater ability to be patient, and we're being patient a greater amount of time. And the Holy Spirit is producing that in us. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Fourthly, the Spirit's ministry is evidenced in the good works we walk into. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has uh, uh, created or, or prepared beforehand good works so that we could walk in them. That we are his workmanship. We are his poema. We are his work of art. And, and he wants us to walk into these good works to display who he is. Jesus says, let your good works shine before men so that they see your good works. Let, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. These are the good works he has prepared for us. And if the Spirit is leading our walk and ministering in our body, we're going to see a greater and greater amount of these good works in our way. So the second way that or evidence that we have is that the Spirit is ministered in our heart. Thirdly, a Christian gains assurance through answered prayer. Through answered prayer. Fill in the word answered. First John five thirteen through fifteen. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. You know, one of the evidences that we're saved is we see God answering our prayers. See, some of us don't have this assurance because we don't pray very often at all. But God answers prayers we don't pray. He, he really does. But when we don't pray, we forfeit the assurance that comes with 
knowing that God is answering our prayer. I'm sure we've all had instances where we have this huge need, where we're in distress and we call out to God and he answers our prayer. You know, I, I had one of these uh, not too long ago. Earlier this year, I was flying to Israel and I had a happy seat on the plane. I was like in the back, in the middle, and I was just going to be jammed in there. Very uncomfortable for me and very uncomfortable for everybody around me. I don't really fit in those airline seats very well, and I'm stressing out about it. I'm on my way to the airport, and I'm like, I don't know how this is going to work. You know, I'm not ready to be that uncomfortable for 15 hours, and I'm not ready for the people around me to hate me because I'm making them uncomfortable. And so I start praying. Hey, God, do something. God, you're able to fix this. God, grant me favor. And I get to the airport, and I check in and that, and I get to my gate, and I, I go up, and I, and I explain the problem to them, and they're like, hey, let me check. Oh, could we move you up to the uh, business class? You know how that's for room and this, and they put you in this middle row where there's nobody there, and I ended up with this whole row to myself with extra leg room and all of that. You see, God answered my prayer. And I had confidence after that that, hey, you know what? I, I, I truly am in relationship with God. I'm truly in fellowship with Him because He answered that prayer. He met me in that need. You see, when God answers our prayers, when He shows Himself strong on our behalf, not only is it a huge blessing, but it increases our assurance. God wants you to have assurance. God wants to answer your prayers. So seek, seek to pray. Press into praying. And I guarantee you, your assurance is going to go up at the same time. Fourth, a true child of God longs for Christ's return. Throwing the word return. Philippians 3.20, Paul writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the imminent return of Christ something that excites you? Are we trying to live our lives in the light of it? Do we live in light that he could return any second? Remember that we believe the parts of the Bible that we obey. Right? So if we're not living like Jesus could return any minute, like we expect that he could return today, then we don't actually believe that Jesus can return today. And we have no right to claim this for ourselves. But if every day we are praying, hey, Jesus, come quickly. Maranatha, come, Lord, come. I, I, I want to see your face, Lord. And we're living in light of that. Then we have an assurance that we truly are children of God. Next, we'll look at the evidences through a Christian's spiritual life and growth. For letter B from spiritual life and growth. And then for number one, throwing the word discernment. Salvation is evidenced through spiritual discernment. See, those born of the Spirit are able to discern between spiritual truth and spiritual error. Able to test the Spirit, Paul, or John says in 1 John 4. 1 John 4, 1 through 3, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this you know the Spirit of God. The confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and is now in the world already. Are you able to discern false teachers? Does the spirit inside of you churn when you hear false teaching? You may not know exactly what's wrong or, or, or what the error is. You may not be able to articulate the false teaching, but you should have this sense inside of you that, hey, something here is wrong. You see, in First John, it also says that we have this unction given us the Father that, 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 that teaches us wisdom from the truth. Uh, a handful of years ago, we had this Bible study at my friend's house, and we're reading it. It was a small group. It was really intimate. It, it was really sweet. But one of the girls that, that started coming, her name was Rochelle, and and she was really sweet. She was kind of young in the Lord, and she was telling us how she went to this church. And I'm not going to say what church it is or, or what pastor, but it was a local church. And she went there, and, and she was like, I couldn't tell what it is. But, but I was sitting there, and I, I just knew that this was wrong. I just knew that this this, this wasn't the truth. I just had this feeling in my gut that i got to get out of here, that this is false teaching. And so I went and found the recording from that church and listened to it. And, and this guy was a complete false teacher. He was completely, you know, teaching false doctrine and, and you know, leading people into error. And, and, and she, you know, wasn't that old in the Lord, but she knew exactly what the Bible said about it. But her heart was telling her, this is wrong. And this is the discernment that the Spirit gives us. 1 John 2.20 says, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Now, you're not going to fall away. You're not going to be swept into false doctrine, into a false worldview, because you have an anointing, and you know for sure, is what John is saying. A few verses after this, where he's telling us to test the spirits. 1 John 4, 5, and 6, he says, They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. But this, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Do you listen to the apostles? Do you listen to the word of God? Is that where you get the instruction? Is that what you follow? If so, that you can have assurance that are in spiritual truth. You have spiritual discernment. Number two, a saved person has an acute awareness of the holiness of God and their own sinfulness. So holiness and sinfulness are your two fillings. See, there's this form of Christianity going around today that doesn't make much of sin. I'm sure we all know people that confess to be Christians or Groups that call themselves Christians, right? That they, they don't really, they really call much of anything sin anymore. There's this kind of antinomianism, you know, this easy believism, right? There's not really any law. You just kind of do whatever you want, as long as you confess Jesus is name, it's all good. This, this easy believism, and you see this in groups like Progressive Christianity, but it's also in much of mainline Protestantism. Unfortunately, you see, the problem is, is that these groups have made justifications for just about every sin that they do instead of calling it sin. 
all of a sudden things like homosexuality is okay. Having a few too many drinks with the boys is certainly not that big of a deal. Telling white lies or cheating on your taxes, eh, everybody does it, you know, and it's not that big of a deal. You see, for a lot of folks, the only sin really is is judging other people. Right? It's like the, the single and greatest commandment is judge not to them. And as long as you're not being judgmental of them, it's like, hey, you're a good, godly person. doesn't matter. You see, but because they don't call any sin, they're not saying, they're saying that they don't have any sin. If nothing is a sin, they, they're, they're saying, hey, I, I don't really have any sin. I don't have anything to confess. I'm good with God. And a lot of the people I talk to on the street say that very thing. Well, 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10 says this. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, as we grow in the faith, we become more and more of our sinfulness. You see, I think I'm a bigger sinner now than I thought I was when I first got saved. And I was into some really big sins when I got saved. You know, like the big, big sins that we call sins? Like, I, I was doing those, right? And then I get saved, and God starts changing me. And he's been changing me. And I've grown in holiness. I've grown in sanctification. But the closer I get to God, the more I realize, hey, I'm a sinner. I, 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 I got even more sin now than I thought I did then that I need to confess, that I need healing from. I realize I'm more and more unlike the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah, probably the holiest man on the planet. He's a prophet of God. He's going around and preaching, whoa, 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 to everybody. You know, telling people to call them to repentance, telling them about the holiness of God, telling them there's a coming judgment. And then he sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple and the cherubim chanting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does he say? Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a sinful man, and I live amongst a, a sinful people. How about Peter? Right? Jesus calls the Lord Peter. Or the Lord Jesus calls Peter to follow him after he brought in this huge catch of fish. And what does Peter say? Trust in him, Lord, I'm a, I'm a sinful man. You see, Isaiah got this great vision of the Lord. Uh, Peter got to see this great miracle of the Lord standing right before the Lord. And all of a sudden, they were undone by their sinfulness. They realized just how sinful they are. And when we meet the Lord, when we truly see the Lord, we're going to have that same response. We're not going to be like casual about sin. We're not going to be able to be all lackluster about sin. Hey, it ain't no big deal. It's all covered under the blood. No, we're going to be undone by our sin when we're truly meeting and so when we read the Bible, are we reading it and we're like, oh, this is neat, this is cool, I could share this with somebody? Or are we saying, man, this isn't me, I need help, I need grace, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But a genuine believer confesses their sin and sees the holiness of God. Point number three, a genuine believer has a decreasing pattern of sin in their life. They're growing in sanctification. 
1 John 3, 9 says, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now this isn't saying that if you sin ever that you're not born of God. That's not what this passage is saying. It says he cannot sin. This is a, a present active verb. Right? A, a present tense verb is it's, it's happening and there's an ongoing continual action. It, it keeps on happening is the idea. And that's not true of if it's just believer concerning sin. It's not going to be an ongoing continual pattern in our life. We're going to start to have some semblance of victory over it. In this progress in the fight over sin, it's, it might be three steps forward and two steps back, but there's going to be progress. We might see area, uh, we might see victory in one area and not in another. But in one, some area of our life, we're going to be seeing progress in overcoming sin. I think a, a great picture of this is, is Israel coming into the, the, the promised land. God says, I, I, I've given you the land, but you're going to have to go in and you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to subdue it. You're going to have to drive out the nations. Right? Otherwise, the beasts of the field are going to rise up against you. You're going to become prideful, and it's going to be to your downfall. And they had to go in and fight city by city and take it until they took the whole promised land. And the Spirit of God comes into us, and it starts illuminating different sins in our life. And we go and we make war against these sins, and we start to overcome them. And then it goes and it illuminates another aspect of sin, and, and, and we start overcoming that until we take the whole promised land with you. God is leading us on this holy war, fighting sin in our life and overcoming it. And what I love about the, the children of Israel conquesting Canaan was the very first battle God wanted to teach them something. Before they went and took Jericho, the most fortified city in the promised land, remember the night before, Joshua is praying. He's seeking the Lord. God, we need you. We can't take Jericho without you. Remember what he sees? He sees the captain of the Lord's army holding a sword. And he asks him, hey, are you for us? Or are you against us? He says, neither. I've come as a captain of the Lord's host. It was the Lord Jesus that was going to lead him into this battle. It was the Lord Jesus who was going to give him victory over the enemy. And we saw that. The instruction he gives Joshua on how to take Jericho, right? You're going to march around the city 13 times. You're going to blow a shofar, and you're going to scream, and the walls are going to fall down, and I'm going to destroy everything, and the victory is going to be yours. God wanted to make it very clear from the very start that if they're going to have victory, it's going to be because of God. It's going to be through God. God's going to fight their battles. And it's the same thing with us. As we have victory over sin in our life, as we progress in sanctification, it's because God is fighting for us. God is giving victory to us over one sin after another. He's progressing us in holiness. Point number four, a genuine believer has an increasing pattern of obedience in their life. I know I'm going long. I'll finish it quick. In 1 John 2, 3, it says that we know that we have come to know him if we keep his this word translated keep, tereo, speaks of a watchful, careful, thoughtful obedience. Not just the hands, but also the heart. 
True Christian obedience is a willing, habitual safeguarding of the word, both in letter and spirit. A true believer obeys the commandment of Scripture, and patterns of sustained obedience produce confidence that one has a saving relationship with God. Later, John's going to say that keeping these commandments isn't burdensome to us. Is it a joy for you to obey God's word? Do we take pleasure in pleasing him? Do you know that putting, obeying God's word puts safeguards in our lives? It protects us from other kinds of sin. The more we actively obey the scripture we know, the less we're going to fall into other sins that's going to prevent, that's going to prevent us from having harm come into our lives. You know, this. there was this kid, and, and he was just riding his bike in circles around his cul-de-sac, and this cop was just sitting there watching him, and he's like, finally looked up at him, and he says, hey, kid, what are you doing? Why are you just riding in circles? And the kid goes, I'm running away from home. And he goes, yeah, but why are you just riding in circles? And the kid says, because my mom says I'm not allowed to go past the end of my block. By, by obeying his mom, it, it protected him from further harm and, and, and from breaking further rules. And when we obey the parts of Scripture that we know, it's going to keep us from falling into error in other parts. It's going to keep a harm from coming our way. Let us see evidences from a Christian's relationship with other people. So in other people. And then for number one, a genuine believer has a growing rejection of worldliness. So in worldliness. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You see here, Paul is, or John is talking about Christian affections. He's talking about the things we enjoy most, the things that we long for. Are these things of the world or of heaven? Do we most like to hang out amongst the unsaved or the saved? Do we like doing things that unsaved people do, or do we like doing things that regenerate people do? That is the idea. You see, but a, a saved person is growing in their ability to see that the things of the world are vanity, and that this world system and the unregenerate uh, are, are, are harming their relationship with Christ. And so they have a, a decreasing fellowship with that and an increasing fellowship with God and with his saints. Now, being on mission and seeking to save people out of their vain existence and ungodly life is not the same thing as having fellowship with them. Right? Those are two different things. In fact, the more that we have fellowship with God, the more I believe that we're going to be trying to seek the unsaved and, and bring them to salvation. Because that's what Jesus does. That's Jesus' mission. And Luke 19, 10, it says that I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And if we're in fellowship with Christ, if we're walking with Christ, we're going to be doing the same thing. But we need to be careful. We need to stay on mission. We need to remember the objective. See, far too often in my life have I used trying to reach the unreached or reach the, my unsaved friends as a way to justify hanging out with ungodly people, as a way to justify doing un, 
godly things. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So be careful. Number two, a genuine believer not only rejects the world, but is also rejected by the world. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. You see, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins it with the Beatitudes. And I think we often get these Beatitudes wrong. I think we often believe that the things that Jesus says, then we will be blessed. If we exhibit the behaviors Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, Jesus will bless us. In other words, if we're poor in spirit, we will earn a blessing. If we mourn, we'll be blessed. If we're meek, we'll be blessed. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be blessed. But the fact of the matter is, we aren't blessed because we do these things. We're blessed because Jesus, our great high priest, has declared a blessing over us. In the Old Testament, it was the Aaronic blessing. The high priest Aaron would proclaim a blessing over the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. You get it, right? Well, now here, Jesus is pronouncing a blessing over his people. And he's saying that you are blessed. And to the degree we live out that blessing, these qualities, these attributes are going to exhibit themselves in our life. They're going to start to show. And the more that we stand out from the world, the more that we uh, exhibit the qualities mentioned in Sermon on the Mount, the more the world's going to hate us and it's going to persecute us. That's why the last beatitude says this in Matthew 5, 11 and Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did you know the early church wasn't primarily persecuted because they were believing in Jesus? The persecution that they were facing was primarily because they disassociated themselves with the things of Rome. They weren't participating in the things that Roman society was doing. They didn't go to the gladiator games. They wouldn't worship the emperor and things like that. And so the Romans hated them for that. Remember Jesus, the light says the light shines in darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. It doesn't overcome it. It doesn't acknowledge it, right? Our, our light exposes darkness. And oftentimes darkness is responses to try to put out the light. The more you let your light shine, the more you're going to expose others' unrighteousness, and they're probably not going to respond in a nice way. Abel's light exposed Cain's unrighteousness. And how did Cain respond? He killed his brother. And that was the first two people born of a woman. And all through history, we, we read and, and study and even see in the Bible that things haven't really changed that much. You know, Charles Wesley, he used to judge how he was doing with his walk in God, or with God, by the amount of persecution that he faced. One, it's written in his journal that one day he, he had said that, hey, I haven't been persecuted in three days. And so he got down, he got off his horse, and he started to pray. And as he was praying out loud, this guy on the other side of this wall started hearing Charles. He's like, hey, that's Charles Wesley praying. I hate that guy. And he picked up a brick and threw it over the wall. 
you just missed Charles Wesley. Here's a little praising God because the persecution came back into his life. But they hated Jesus, and if they hated Jesus, they're going to hate us too. Jesus even says that. John 15, verses 18 through 21. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they do, they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Last point, point number three, a true believer has a genuine love for the brethren. A believer has a genuine love for the brethren. First John 3.10 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause of stumbling in him. But for the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. Remember I was talking to this lady and we were... I was trying to counsel her. We had some problems going on in the church, and, and I'm talking to her, and, and she just keeps telling me how she hates this girl in the church. Like, she's been, I hate this girl. I really hate her. And I'm like, I don't think you really do. And I explained to her what it means to hate someone. She's like, no, that, that, that's exactly how I feel. I, I, I really hate her. And I'm like, now I'm, now I'm really concerned, because now it's not just this homework fellowship. Now, now I'm concerned that you're not saved. Because the Bible says if you if you hate your brethren, the love of God isn't in you. Because how could we hate our brother? Because our brother is created in God's image. Right? Our, our brother is literally the image of God. And, and hating them is in, in, in a sense hating God. Not only is he created in the image of God, but he's bought by the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. If our Lord was willing to go to the cross and be tortured to death for that person, and he's saying, I love him that much, how could we say we love God and we hate that person? You know, the, the quickest way to lose favor with someone is, is telling them that you hate their wife. Right? Hey, I want to be your friend. I love you, but your wife, you know, I, I really hate her. She's something else. That's, that's not going to go over very well. And not only are they created in God's image, not only is God very, uh, not only did Jesus buy them on the cross, but Jesus also lived in them. In 1 Corinthians 6, we learn that the Spirit of God dwells inside of believers, makes his home inside of us, that we are his temple. See, when we're up with other believers, we're really with the Lord because the Lord is living in them. And to the degree that they progress in sanctification, we actually get to see the Lord in them. This is why it's so amazing when we get to come together and fellowship because we get to see God in ways that we can't anywhere else. But the way that we treat the brethren, the way that we treat other Christians is really the way that we treat Jesus. 
That's why Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting Stephen? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? Because the way we treat other believers is the way we treat Jesus. So the true believer has confidence and security. It's clear God wants us to have that. But to those who can't say that these things are true of them, there is no confidence. God's saying, return to me. Come back. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to get right with me. Doesn't matter if you never confess Christ, if you're an apostate, if you're in a, <coughs> if a prodigal, if you're a backslider. It doesn't matter. The Bible's clear. There's no security. There's no assurance. And the Lord is saying, return today salvation. That's not too late. God's grace will cover whatever sins you've committed. Come to him. Receive forgiveness. Ask for the Holy Spirit. He'll give it. He says, you know, if a child asks his father uh, for bread, he's not going to give him a rock. If he asks his father for a fish, he's not going to give him a serpent. If your fathers who are evil delight to give you good things, how much more will your fathers in heaven delight to give you the Holy Spirit if you ask for it. If we cry out to God and, and confess our sins and, and, and confess our need and want for the Holy Spirit, God will give it to us. God will forgive us. God will give us the Spirit. God will give us what we ask. Amen? So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you've given us uh, confidence. You give us assurance that we're truly in you and that we have a confidence in your salvation. That it's not up to us to get us to heaven but it's your job. We have a security in you, Lord. I pray that knowing these things will give us a boldness to walk in you and to proclaim you and to live for you in this God-forsaken world, Lord. We love you. We can't wait for you to come back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.